You're listening to Sport, Digital and Social with Mr. Richard Clark. They all went to new social media all day out. They're footballers, they'll get X amount off the pitch commercially. We don't need it. It's all well and good being on a platform. If your content is just talking about what you do on the pitch, it's a bit pointless because people see what you do on the pitch for 90 minutes. It's about what you're doing off the pitch. Drive the content, drive the engagement and drive an influence through there. That's what brands now want. I don't even think a lot of them even check their Twitter anymore. They do not even know that what's going on their Facebook half the time. They don't even know what's being posted on their wall or anything like this. They're so concentrated on their Instagram feed, stories, what's being tagged in their DMs. Hi there. Now, we're told all the time these days that athletes are brands. Digital and social media has given them unprecedented capabilities of direct communication. So it's about finding your audience, telling your story, engaging your followers, and then those sponsorship dollars will roll in. But what does this actually entail in practice? I spoke to Essen Shah, who's guiding some major footballers through this particular minefield. What do they have to do? How do they have to act? How do they react to fans? Who do they have to listen to? How do they react when things are not going so well on the pitch? Listen to this podcast and then hit me up on social media. I'm at Mr. Richard Clark on all social and we can discuss the topics raised here. The show notes are at mrrichardclark.com, my website. You can also find me there if you want to discuss consultancy, content or speaking engagement. I'll let Essen introduce himself and then we'll go straight into the interview. So my name is Esther Shine. I'm the founder and managing director of Be Engaged. So what we essentially do is engage athletes with sporting audiences to then drive them into building an influence to then drive a commercial stream for them. In essence, all we're focusing on is engaging the player with the fans and then the brands with those fans that that player is engaged with. So Essen, when you're looking to build a player's brand, what method do you apply? Is it a method or is it different for each one or is it some basics that, that, that you tailor? I think the basics that we look at are the person themselves. So what they like as a human, right? So we take away the complete aspect of what they do on the pitch. What we're trying to do is build their brand off the pitch. They're, only they are in control of what they do on the pitch, no one else is. So we look at, one, what's their personality like? Are they open, engaging with people or are they more reserved and kind of shut off? that then determines the type of strategy you're then going to follow. With, for example, Hector Bellerin, he's very open, engaging with people. He's good on camera. So that then drives us into, okay, we can use more video content. If you look at other players, for example, if you look at Mezozo, very shut off, very private. You can't really do too much video content with them. So that then determines how you're building the fan base, how you're then engaging with them and what type of a brand route and brand strategy are you going to take. That then determines the content you're then developing. There's, there's pointless in us trying to come up with content strategies that doesn't fit the player's brand or their personality. We're forcing something that doesn't need to be forced. And let's just guess the, get the basics down for being engaged. How long have you been going? How many staff have you got? Um, and who's on your roster as well? So we've been going officially for 14 months now. Previously, I worked at another agency and before then I worked for a brand. So I've always been kind of brand side, kind of identified that players could be marketed better. When I was on brand side, we weren't getting the return on investments that we should have been getting. Moved over to player side, working alongside the agents and the players now. 
we've been going for 14 months and there's eight of us in the UK, four in Spain, and we're looking to open up in another European league at the moment. The players that we work with, people like Hector Bellerin, Rhys Nelson, we're working on commercial aspects with Meza Ozil, Kogundigan, Marcus Asensio. We've then got another roster of young players that we're working to educate and protect them that once they're at that level to be marketed a bit wider and kind of on different levels, we'll then start working with them there. But at the moment, it's all about educating and protecting the younger players. Can a player fulfil their marketing potential without having a good social media game these days? I think the space has changed. So Instagrammers, YouTubers, esports, that's massively changed the space for footballers. If we take it back even five years pre-kind of Instagram phase where everyone is now a public figure, it was probably easier for footballers to build a brand, build a commercial identity. Now everyone wants influencers. It's not necessarily athletes. When you talk to a brand, they're all about which influencers can we use. It's not the conversation isn't about which athletes can we use anymore. So without social, it's very difficult unless you're on a Messi, Neymar, Cristiano stage. But even then, Neymar, Cristiano are getting endorsement deals they're getting because of their social numbers. For example, I think it was an Egyptian steel company did something with Cristiano back in the last season. The only reason they did it was for the social numbers. There's no integration between the two brands. There's nothing there. It's just brand awareness for them. So I think in answer to your question, no, not in the modern day, maybe five years ago, but now definitely not. And even though you can help them with their social media game in general, and you adapt it to the different personalities, they still have to have a measure of of engagement with you to be comfortable with what you're doing because you're representing them. How do you manage that? Because a lot of players will be grown up with coaches telling them, Forget about everything but on the pitch. Forget about everything but on the pitch. This is all nonsense. If you play well on the pitch, you earn enough money, don't worry about it. But the modern football has moved into a yeah. different phase there. So there's a, a lot of things at play here. The personality of the player, the personality of the coach driving them on, the nature of the game. How do you communicate that to players? I think it's a generational change as well. The younger generation of players coming through were born when social media was around. They've been brought up on social media, so it's very much part of their life if you kind of look at the players that have been around for a number of years now they weren't brought up on this they may have been first teamers already by the time social media actually exploded into the football scene so with the younger generation of players it's far easier so a number of the guys will still control their social media they'll still actively look through if they're liking pictures it'll be them that's liking the pictures they're going through their mentions they're looking at the interactions and they'll proactively come up with suggestions to do things as well they may see someone that's um, sent in a message via twitter about helping someone or something like that they then may message us and say look i've seen this i'd like to help them so with the younger generation they're very active so it's about having a collaboration between the two that we help them amplify their ideas but also we help provide suggestions on ideas to help them amplify their brand so with the younger guys, it's very much a two-way relationship. Without us, they can't really do what they want to do. And without them, we can't do what we're hoping to achieve with them. So with the younger generation, it's very different. With the older generation, it's very much about educating them to the benefits of social media. So coming back to the whole education part, we have to show them 
how to use it and how best to use it. Now we're working with a manager at the moment who's probably top four in the world. Now trying to make him understand that he needs to go on social media to get the commercial endorsements that he's hoping to achieve is very difficult. He doesn't want to be seen too active on social, but then also he, he needs to have some sort of voice out there. So trying to now balance that act is completely different to talking to an 18-year-old or a 22-year-old on why they should be on social media. So it's very difficult because we do need the buy-in from them. Without them, it's pointless. It's trying to then show them what motivates them to be on there. We have to find that motivation and then best use that motivation to then push on. What sort of conversations have you had with agents over the years and have they changed in the last four or five? Because they tended to put a, a hard shell around their players. So four years ago when I left brand side and started to work player side, they all went to me, social media will die out. Footballers don't need it. They're footballers, they'll get X amount off the pitch commercially. We don't need it. And I kind of sat back and I, I listened to them and I just waited for the right time because there was agents, particularly foreign agents, who understood it far better than, say, maybe homegrown agents. So working with a Spanish agent, a German agent, for example, they'd understand that social media was the next generation of where football may be going. They were the ones that first jumped on it. There were still homegrown agents that did understand it. And they were the ones that maybe benefited better out of it. For for example, if you looked at Gareth Bale when he first was at Spurs four years ago, he was the one that actually took to social media and actually embraced it to build his following to that extent that once he was at Real Madrid, it was then commercialised. Without that social following, it may have taken him six months longer or a year longer. So would they have missed out on that phase of when they first moved to Madrid and all the hype and then the brands that want to work on there? Without the numbers, it's a bit difficult for a brand to justify an endorsement fee. So it was a big barrier to entry, especially on the social media side for companies such as ours. But it's very much changed now. They all understand it. I don't know whether that's now down to boot contracts where they're now forcefully putting in X amount of social posts within their contracts. I've worked on enough endorsement deals over the past year to kind of see the amount of social posts that replicate with a fee. Without those social posts, those, those fees drop dramatically. I've seen some drop over 75%. So there's a massive change now in the, in the industry. Football's kind of caught on to, yeah, social will be the next generation. It's now the problem that you're now having is to drive that engaged audience. Now trying to show the agents that actually, yeah, you're on social, yeah, but the content isn't right and that's not driving the engaged audience. So it's all well and good being on a platform. If your content is just talking about what you do on the pitch is a bit pointless because people see what you do on the pitch for 90 minutes. It's about what you're doing off the pitch. Drive the content, drive the engagement and drive an influence through there. That's what the brands now want. Coming back to the whole public figure thing with YouTubers and Instagrammers, but it'll be a forever ongoing battle, but people will get there in the end. What analytics do the brands particularly want at the moment? Because Followership is one thing. We, yeah. we seem to be chipping away at that. It's now it's not about reach, it's about engagement. Yeah. What sort of engagement? So with, with the brands, what they're primarily looking at is, depends on the whole purpose of their campaign. If they're going for brand awareness, they're looking at impressions, aren't they? We've had a lot of new brands that are coming in or brands that are trying to change their perception and they're focusing on the impressions. Brands that are focusing more on sales or direct impact on drive-through, click-through rates to their websites, they're looking at engagement. So each brand actually differs in what they're trying to look look for. There's no 
no one size fits all in this kind of thing. I've even had some brands come back to us and go, what's, what was the value of that post? Can you give it to us in numbers? Now there's analytics companies out there that can actually give you the cost per post. What value is that having on a brand? So we're now looking at those type of models to kind of feed back into KPIs for the brand. So each brand's looking at different things. Most of them are looking at the engagements, the follower numbers. They're now starting to realize actually it doesn't mean a lot. You could have a player that previously played for Real Madrid once they leave Real Madrid, yeah, they've still got the followers, but no one's actually following them or engaging with their posts. So we've seen a number of high-profile players that have played for big clubs move across to another club. Followers drop, engagement massively drops. You've got players out there with 2 million followers and they're only getting 16,000 likes. So that kind of shows that those followers aren't actually engaged with that athlete anymore. The average cost per post is now kind of a new one that everyone's looking at. What value does that have on there? For me, does that actually replicate into physical value? Not quite yet, but eventually, maybe in two or three years, it might might sit better. So data is important. You're analysing the data. Oh, just run me through your staff. You mentioned the number of staff, but who's doing what? The account executives, you've got content creators, and do you have an analyst? Do you have a data geek in there? Yeah, so that analytics side, we, we sub-contract um, out to another company so for us looking at the cost effort and maintenance of building your own analytic system is just way beyond with it any reason to do it in-house anymore so we look at external agencies that can provide that for us that data then gets driven in i'll look at the data so i'm solely responsible for all of the data side within the company we then have a creative manager who looks at concept developments that we can work with brands and players. What content can we create and what kind of creative concepts that can we come up with? We've then got a video producer who solely looks after producing video content, video editor. Then we've got a photographer and then we've got a commercial manager. So we're covering all aspects within the company. But as you can see, large chunk of our company sits on the content creation side and making sure that the player social feeds are kept up to date with the right content. And then we have, between myself and the commercial manager, we'll then work out which brands are we targeting, how we target them, and then work alongside the creative manager who will then come up with contacts with these brands. In terms of your contracts with the players, I'm not, obviously not going to go into too much detail, but is it is it just a... Are you paid on performance and a flat fee or is it, is it just a flat fee? With us, it's just a flat fee. So we just look at um, helping the player develop their profile. We'll target brands for them. We'll contact the brands for them and then we'll drive the commercial deals. We don't work on a commission basis or anything like that. For me, I've always felt that the commission-driven aspects of things, especially brand side of football, leads to bad deals. We've seen um, a number of players do questionable deals and it always comes down to probably someone was there to hit a target and that target was doing a deal with say Subway or someone of that caliber so we work on a flat fee monthly rolling contracts we don't tie in anyone to a long-term contract the reason for that is I believe in what we're producing the content wise and the commercial deals wise so once a player is on board and is performing well there's no reason for them to leave if they start to drop in their performances it's not right for them to be doing things off the pitch. So we then kind of scale it back and tell them to focus on the pitch. Once they're then ready to do something off the pitch again, we then re-engage and go from there. My 
podcasters listen to about a lot of content creators. So they don't necessarily know the process of so we contact the brands. Yeah. That, that's, a, that's an easy statement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But people on the other side of that say, well, where do you go? Who do you target? Who do you ring? Who do you... So talk me through that. Yeah. So we contact the brands. Yeah. Pre-contacting, we identify the industries that the players resonate best with and their audiences resonate best with. Within that industry, we then work out which brands do the players like or would they be happy to work with. Now, you're always going to get the tier one brands that everyone's going to talk about, the high-end fashion brands and things like that. We then have to kind of scale back. We take those brands off the table. We then work with them, okay, which ones are realistically achievable? Which ones have done things in sport before? Which ones have the potential to do things in sport? We then look at um, our network of brands that we've worked with in the past. A lot of the times, people move within the brand industry. So do we know someone that maybe at the brand or is now working alongside that someone may have worked with that brand before. We use our network first. If our network doesn't know anyone, then we start to engage with, okay, what type of concepts and ideas can we come up with to motivate the brand to want to talk with us? It's very easy for someone to just email someone in and say, oh, we work with X, Y, and Z. Would you like to work with us? So you're coming with an idea, a formed idea, a player fits with the brand and an idea, this is what we can do for you. It's a little package. Yeah. So for me, I don't believe in the whole concept of just picking up the phone and saying, I work with this player, would you like to work with this player? As a brand, I've been on the brand side, what's that really doing for us? Yeah, the, the player may be extremely high caliber, but unless we can see it fit with our brand, there's no point in taking the conversation further. So we're trying to take the conversation beyond an email or beyond a first point of contact. We want them to meet with us so we can show them the activations we've done with people like Puma, NBA, NFL. We want them to see those concepts and those activations and then how we've distributed that content. It does. Our job doesn't stop at just making the content and just passing it over. We're then looking at how can we distribute this? How can we maximize the content so as many people can see this? where they're working with influencers like SoccerBible, Soccer.com, Copper Mundial, Copper 90. So how can these guys help us amplify our content? So it's more than just, hey, we're, we work with X player, can we now engage and do a partnership? We're looking at a bigger picture here. What can we do to best serve the brand and the player? What's the best partnership you've done? And, and talk me through the process. So for us, it was... The one we've been most proud of has been with Bagnolison. So they're high, high in luxury tech brand. Now within sport, everyone looks at Beats. Everyone looks at Bose. Now, no one's really looked at Bagnolison. I don't know for what reason, but that brand's always been overlooked within the sports industry. Perhaps they're not cool enough. I mean, they're quality, but perhaps they're not cool enough. Right? Yeah, I think Beats have really gone down that route of not focusing on, um, kind of the product quality and kind of going from a mass exposure where it's bang Olufsen are very tailored, very unique, how the attention to detail, right? So with us, it was with Hector. Okay, there was a campaign proposal with Beats and when I took it to Hector, he basically went to me, I don't think I can endorse Beats. We dived into it further. He didn't believe in the product. He didn't believe in the quality of the product. So I went to the conversation then went further which brand would you work with and he only had one brand on his list it was Brian Olison he was like I like their products I like the way they look they fit with what I'm all about so we basically developed a concept for them with 
hype beast. So we looked at which influencer accounts would Brian Lawson look to be placed in and which would make sense for Hector's profile and their, their future profile. So Hypebeast was one of those ones. We then developed a whole campaign around working with Hypebeast, working with Brian Lawson and executed that. That then, I think the campaign alone got five and a half million views on in the first week through one publication. So that then led to other bits and pieces. Um, Brian Lawson then took that further and used it within their luxury um, product space rather than just the B&O play which made sense for the sports market so for us that was a good one because we had a campaign for a PR agency of Beats that said we want to do this with Hector Bellerin came back that actually didn't work for him let's find another solution that makes sense and the fact that it was only just one brand that he wanted to go find a concept that works for them engage with them and then build a relationship with them for him that then led to a return on his investment was quite satisfying. And how long was that process from the conversation with Hector to it being done? You sending the reports with the analytics in? I think it took nine months. So anything to do with these type of things always takes a long time. So if people are expecting from first discussion to sign contract in three months, it's, it's very difficult to kind of move a process that quickly. We've had processes that do work very swiftly, but there will they will most likely be when the brands come to you. They, they've come with a set budget, a set idea, a set vision, and the player just either needs to be on, on board or off board. So when we take something, it takes a lot longer because we have to get the brand to buy into what we're trying to pitch in. And you talked about ROI and the fact that we're kind of not fully there yet in terms of a, a, a complete formula that's nailed down. But... What was your demonstration of ROI in that particular instance? Was it it was just those impressions, and this is what you got for that amount? So it was as simple as that, was it? With BNO, they were practically looking at how many people can they reach that they haven't reached before. So we're looking at a whole new market, a whole new demographic. Their their consuming base is very much twenty five plus. They were targeting the younger generation of sixteen to twenty four. So. We very much dived into how many 16 to 24 year olds viewed this. That for them was a ticking. On what platform? On what platform? So they were looking at um, emails and website um, traffic. So for them, it was very much that. A lot of the brands now will say to you, actually, social sits so far away from a purchase point. So how do we drive from social to purchase point? Now we're working on a few concepts with brands and retailers to reduce that gap. Um, hopefully, come November 2019 that campaign will launch and everyone will see kind of a new take on how campaigns will be distributed and kind of reduce the gap between a purchase point and campaign where it sits we're trying to change the way brands work as well rather than just change the way players work I'm not sure if you notice but occasionally on social media there's a bit of flat flying around yeah. <laughs> especially with footballers mm-hmm. especially in the Premier League What's your approach? How do you how do you handle that with players? How do you insulate my prism? It's about education, education, yeah. education. But but what's that process? The process is um, first of all we take off notifications on their Twitter feeds. So for example, they won't have any push notifications. This is if if crisis point happens or just normally, just generally, just generally. It's, to, it's to protect them, right? So a player could have a great game, score a goal, and he'll still get some sort of negative abuse from someone or another. Now. 
we look at um, how do we let them best protect them. The fact that Twitter brought out the um, quality filters has helped us massively. We tend to recommend that the guys just have in their mentions the people that they follow. So if someone that they follow mentions them, they can see that well verified. Beyond that, we recommend them to turn it off. Outside of um, their social platforms, we use analytics that shows sentiment around the players. Every week we send them their sentiment report because as much as they'll see the negative abuse in their mentions, the overall conversation is positive around them. So I remember having a conversation with Rob Holden and we were having a conversation around a couple of bits of content that went out. Obviously, it's a lot easier for people to say negative things than it is to say easy things. The easy thing for them to do if they like it is to like it. They're not going to necessarily jump into your comments and tell you how much they love that bit of content or how much they love you. So we then send the sentiment report and actually the sentiment around it was 95% positive, 5% negative. I went to him, you're only seeing the 5% negative in your... And it sticks in your mind. It sticks in your mind. It is, yeah. Of course. And that... We have to remember that athletes are very, very sensitive. As much as people see them from the outside in to see these kind of machines and robots, they're not, they're sensitive human beings that perform on confidence. So if someone says something negatively to them, it affects them, they take it in. So we're always trying to manage that and kind of manage their emotions and their, not necessarily their ego, but trying to ensure that it, is at level that they can perform at all times. So social media actually does damage players a lot with their confidence. We've had players in the past that have been abused so badly that they've just gone to us, but you take, you change the password, don't tell me the password. I've had that with a player that's at Barcelona. And the higher, higher up you go, the more abuse you get. So it, I don't know whether it comes down to expectation or what it might be, but at a club like Arsenal, for example, it's a massive international fan base. They may not know exactly what the players are doing day to day. They'll only see the performance for 90 minutes or they may only see the one mistake that they've made in that game in highlights. They may not have seen the other 15 good things they may have done. So we're trying to always manage an international fan base, the player, the content, and trying to continue with the journey that we're doing. So it's quite difficult, but there are... There are methods that we can use, like the quality filter system, the sentiments, showing them the good feedback, but also showing them the bad feedback, that actually the bad feedback is probably one account that's just mentioning a load of players and just abusing them. So we're trying to show them that actually it's not, that person doesn't have anything against you, they have something against maybe the team's performance, but they're just going out to everyone. So that they need to vent, and social media is now a platform for people to vent. Are you actually posting for the players you're responsible for that or is it, is it more on the brand side are you actually taking over yeah. their social feeds as well and, and and do you post for them or do you get them to post so it's a it's a great mix actually the higher caliber of player the more they want you to post for them only down to they don't want to make a mistake they we send them the content or they'll send us the content and we're just the final line of security for them that posts it out. They don't want to do it in the wrong way or the wrong app or just tag something wrong because the more, the greater the followers, obviously it's a lot of these guys have tens of millions of followers. Five seconds, you've got hundreds and hundreds of retweets. So they basically just say to us, look, here's what I want to post. Can you do it? Blah, blah, blah. The younger generation, they tend to we still work on the post together, 
we'll do the Twitter and Facebook for them, they'll do the Instagram. For some reason, the younger generation is so focused on Instagram that I don't even think a lot of them even check their Twitter anymore. Fact, they do not even know that what's going on their Facebook half the time. They don't even know what's being posted on their wall or anything like this. They're so concentrated on their Instagram feed, stories, what's being tagged in their DMs. The Twitter feed is basically there as a news content feed for them. Really, they don't really check their mentions or anything like that anymore. So it does vary, but the higher the caliber of the player, we tend to post for them. And the younger the player, they right now they're doing their Instagrams, but we've noticed the ones that have moved from under 23s to first team to regular first team, they then go to us, actually, can you just take that responsibility away from me so I can focus on that, especially post-game. Emotions are high. Um, say there's a win, the guys don't really want to be focusing on, um, oh, I have to make sure I have to post this correctly, I take the right people, I do this, they go, this is what I want to say, um, can you just post it, use this picture, and then just do it at the right time, because they're too busy celebrating or having a shower or doing post-match interviews. The modern day, they have to do a minimum five interviews nowadays after a game. So if you get dragged into an interview, you're doing five, they're not going to make it out for the next 25 minutes or 30 minutes. So they want you to take over so that their message still gets out to the fans. I mean, there's always the argument that gets in the way of the authenticity, but yeah. there's so many things at play these days. Yeah. I also think the other thing is that players are a little bit that they, that they can be a bit oversensitive and overly bothered about these things. For example, I last one had a player called Andre Santos who was in his English wasn't the best I remember I interviewed him we had, we had translators at the start and he gradually got better but he words the effect of instead of saying great morning guys I'm on the way to training he, he wrote great morning gays I'm on the way to training right which is an absolute mistake yeah. that someone who doesn't know English yeah. would make he's mixed up a vowel and changed its meaning yeah. and it was funny but it's authentic. That is yeah. what someone who doesn't know English yeah. might make a mistake, and he's he's mixed it up in a in a humorous, non derogatory yeah. way. No one's laughing at anybody. Yeah. They're laughing with him. They're not laughing at him. Is that a big issue? I mean, is it is it is there more for a win for a player who's clearly authentic, clearly doing it, it, it himself for the pitfalls of making an understandable error like that? Yeah, you can look at it two ways. So. Obviously, in hindsight, nothing bad came out of it. So you can sit here and say it, it seemed authentic. Now, at the time, I'm sure when you guys were in a club, you were sitting there thinking, oh, no, what's happened here sort of thing. Because times have changed now that maybe when Santos did this, people weren't so fickle or they don't jump onto you as much. Now, one thing I've definitely noticed is that you could do something and it may not actually offend anyone, but someone may take offence to it. They'll then tweet it. They'll, they'll then get thousands of retweets. And then you then have to make a public apology. So social media is changing the fact that everyone's far more negative. It's very easy for people to be negative or pick holes in things. And once they do, other people then jump on it. And especially within the football space, that may have been okay then. Now, I don't know how that may go down. So it's one of those things that as times evolve, times change. So... We're just trying to take as many risk factors away from the guys and protect them as much as we can because as the way it is with the press, they may have picked up on it and then you had that um, Alex Awobi story, for example. Now the headline says something else, the story is something else. Jesse Lingard, the, the headlines say one thing, no one knows what the truth is. 
But the fact is no one actually cares what the truth is anymore. They just care for a headline. That's actually changed the way players want to be, how open they want to be. They really want to protect themselves nowadays because abuse then doesn't stop with them. It goes to their families. So their families on social media, their kids might be their wife, their girlfriend, their mums, their dads. So we've had players in the past, very recently, where a player's in a mass transfer speculation. Families getting abused, players getting abused, wife's getting abused, he's getting death threats to the house. Now, as a player, would you rather have someone that can reduce all these risks or would you rather be authentic and run the risk of something happens, happening to you? So... It's very difficult, even the fact that if a player follows another player from another club. We, we have this with Bellerin, for example. He'll like Cesc Fabregas' pictures, or he'll follow him. Now, obviously, Arsenal fans aren't too fond of Cesc right now, but Hector and Cesc get along, so they're friends. How can they not like each other? So it's those type of things that you're always trying to battle it. It's basically a lost battle half the time. We want to be authentic. We want them to use their social platforms, but at the same time, they can do things like follow another player from another club or like another picture from another club and it turns into this whole thing. I think Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain had it with the Arsenal Fan TV thing where he may or may or not have accidentally liked something from Arsenal Fan TV. A whole fan base jump on the fact that, oh, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain does this. So you, you always have these factors, but we want them to like the things that they like. We want them to retweet the things that they like, but it can cause problems. So... We just have to try and manage it the best that we can. Yeah, I mean, we had the... I remember the Jonathan Ross, Russell Brand issue many years yeah. ago um, where Russell Brand and Jonathan Ross joked about something they shouldn't have done on the radio. And very few people heard it later night. Very few people complained. Mm. But then people sought it out to yeah. find the piece of content and then were outraged yeah. by it. Well, you, you try to find something to be outraged about. And that's the way that archivable content and everything being being around and available uh, and then you're finding something to be shocked at that that's a that's a dynamic that's only been around the last four or five yeah. years you know and, and it comes back to buy footballers on the backside especially yeah, no, that's the thing so if you imagine being watched by millions every minute every second of the day you'd hold back on what you would do yourself now i see a lot of the times when Fans go to players, oh, you shouldn't be doing this, you should be focusing on football, or you should be at training, you shouldn't be doing this. Now, if I said to one of my employees, when you go home, sit at home, don't do anything, don't leave your house, don't go for dinner, don't go to London Fashion Week, for example, that's not a way to live a life, is it? But fans don't see it like this. So the guys want to do as much as they can, but then we try to protect them as much as they can because people make something out of nothing. Bellerin had three days off he was rested for the FA Cup game. He went to Fashion Week to do his own thing. Now, fans then picked up on it. Oh, you should be at the training ground. You should be doing this. But this is day off. He's free to do what he wants. Now, he's not going out two nights before a game. He's not doing anything like that. All he's doing is using his free time to how he wants to use it. But people jump on it. So then the guys think, oh, actually, should I leave the house? Should I do this? Should I do that? It just it makes it difficult for them. But... It's all about trying to educate them and manage and protect them because when they go fashion week, we've got a lot of content. Now then they get the negative abuse, then they don't want to use this content. But there may actually be 75% of the fan base that wants to see that content. So then we naturally have to hold back on the content because the guys go, oh, I'm just going to get abused. Let's not do it. So then we're trying to manage expectations, 
trying to manage what the fans want, what the player wants, because that 5% of negative abuse that they get actually then determines what content they put out. And then the 95% of people that actually love them for who they are don't get to see this content. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. There's, there's, there's signal and there's noise. Yeah. And we're, we're talking about feedback as yeah. all noise, but there's signals in there yeah. as well. So with your sentiment analysis that you're doing, you're giving to a player on a weekly basis, what are you pulling out? Because that's trying to determine between yeah. the signal and the noise. So what we do is we obviously give them, a, it's, it's a pie chart basically, they'll have percentage of positive, percentage of negative. We'll show them five positives and five negatives. And we'll hope that they come up with their own conclusions from the posts that they can see that actually the five negative are just a load of nonsense and the five positives are very much in line with the person rather than the footballer. So, of course, we tailor it to make sure that the five positive are positives that can help the individual and the five negatives aren't going to detriment the individual. So that's what we put into our kind of snapshot report. It's nothing too in-depth and in-detail. It's basically top five of positive, negative, overall percentage of positive and negative sentiment, and then the hope that they can draw their own conclusions from it because they are smart individuals. They know, they know how social works. They can figure out. You have content creators, but I did a podcast recently where someone was talking about clubs might be a little bit more protective of their content than they've got rights on because now players are almost competitive to them in that space specifically over brands and you know you've been in situations I'm in situations where a player says well can I have that picture can I have that video and sometimes we we turn around and say well there's rights issues on on goal footage pictures are still pictures a bit different but that's still club content at times is that conversation starting to happen a little bit? To be fair I'll use Arsenal as an example because they're the most open club with us now we've always had those conversations for the past three years now every time that a player would like a bit of content or we'd like a bit of content. We go to Arsenal Media Group, we ask them for the content. Nine times out of ten, we'll get it. The only times we've ever had actual problems are um, with Premier League video content where it has to come out a certain amount of hours afterwards. But actually, that falls in line with our content strategy because post-game, we post a picture. Then any content related to that game usually comes out two days afterwards anyway. So we don't want to cram too much into a fan's feed or a player's feed. Um We've always had the problem around um, European competitions. Yes, it's different with different competitions. Yeah. FA Cups. FA Cups as well, yeah. So we've we've always had those problems. But what we like to do is, if we use video content with the club, it'll be a compilation of bits, highlights of here, here and there. Now, we did something about Reese Nelson recently, um, post-pre-season. It was his first pre-season. He did very well, played against Bayern Munich, Chelsea. Spoke to the guys at Arsenal, mentioned to them that we basically want to build a highlights reel from the pre-season tour. Carl was very helpful to us. He went, look, I can send you all the raw footage. You guys can edit how you want to edit it or we can do it. And then if we do it the way we do it, we can post it on Arsenal channels. Now for us to have Reese Nelson on Arsenal channels is a massive plus. So we work with the guys. We went, we just want to cover off this, this, this. Carl, can you please make an edit and then we'll use it. With Hector Bellerin, for example, we may not need Arsenal to be posting about him all the time. They do it naturally as it is. So we may edit it in our, in our own way. So we did, um, end of year post for all of the clients, kind of their 2017 in video. So off the pitch and on the pitch, a lot of it will be our own content. A lot of it will be Arsenal's content. We then edit it. Arsenal's given us the rights to use it. So we go from there. Mm-hmm. 
Arsenal come up with their own ideas of how they want to build content or work with them to do that. So we don't see them as competition. I don't really think they see us as competition. All we're trying to do is create content that promotes the Arsenal brand and promotes Player X's brand. And in terms of dealing with clubs in general, I mean, there's, you talked about dealing with, with media groups per se. I was specifying with Arsenal because it gets a bit too Arsenal-y yeah. on the kick in my background. But you're also going to deal with clubs' communications yeah. specialists as well because if something happens to a player, the player might want to tweet about it. Yeah. If it's something specific to them, something bad happens. So you, you've got to open up all these lines of communication. What are those conversations like and what's important from the club side and what's important from the yeah. player side in, the, in those conversations? So we've had all different types of content um, conversations. Sorry, um, Most recently we had one with the club after a game where the referee made a bad, bad decision. Um, given the referee, there's quite a stigma around the referee in terms of trying to be centre of attention. I think I know the one yeah. you're talking about. Players, player A turns around to me and goes, um, I think I want to tweet this out. And it wasn't actually too far gone to end up in a fine, but it was one of those ones where it could, it could be interpreted to be aimed at the referee. I didn't feel it was right. Um, player thought it was okay. But what we did was I basically texted head of communications at the club, mentioned um, he'd, he'd like to post this. What do you guys think? Actually, the club actually turned around and went, um, we don't think it's a direct violation of any FA rules, but for argument's sake, just don't do it. There's no point in running a risk. We've had those situations. We've also had other situations where players um, just signed a contract and somehow someone's leaked it and it's ended up in the press. We then try and fast track an announcement with the club to say to them, look, we've had this conversation internally as a player's team. We'd like to announce it. Then this is how we'd like to announce it. We then work with the club to find the best way to announce it with the chief exec. That's when they then get involved. But it's usually the head of comms will say, we're going to do it then, do it like this. And then we all coordinate that at the same time, we will post it. We've had those situations. We've also had injury situations where the club will come to us and say, we don't want anyone to know X, Y, and Z detail. Obviously, everyone will know he's injured, but maybe we don't want them to know the extent of this or that just yet. Obviously, that impacts the manager and the on-the-pitch performance. If they're expected to be back in three months as opposed to four weeks, teams are going to be then start planning for those type of things. So it actually affects far more than just what's happening on social. It affects clubs, businesses, and things like that. So we have a number of different conversations around these type of situations because sometimes clubs go to us, look, yeah, you sign a contract now, but we don't want anyone to know know this right now. So it is what it is because they have other players that they might be trying to do a contract with. They may not want that other players to then know that player's now done his contract. So there's a load of different situations, but we always talk to the comms guys on a weekly basis. Where's this space moving? For me, this space is moving into a far more fickle space with the fans. I, th- I feel like there's far more demands from fans on players on the pitch. They want to do more off the pitch. But I think it'll drive it into a space where you'll see far more content with players irrespective of football. So they're now starting to see themselves more as human beings, maybe. They'll start to do more of their own videos, their pictures, incorporate their life and showcase who they are more to fans. You see more, you see Netflix and Amazon doing things with Arsenal, Man City. 
now those conversations are now filtering down into players. These on-demand streaming platforms, they're fighting big for sport. They're fighting big for sport personalities. You see far more football TV shows coming out now. So it's more about the players getting their personalities more out there. You'll see players post more regular content or the ones that are very switched on, you'll see far more regular content. Whereas about a year ago, you'd have pre-game, post-game, that was it. That's as much as you're going to hear from a player other than maybe they're posting about Nike boots, Adidas boots or Puma boots. Now you're starting, I feel anyway, that you're going to see more posts out of football. So you'll have your football pieces, but then you'll have players posting about other things outside of it. I believe that there'll be one or two that actually start to be more vocal about their opinions on things, where they've always shied away from it. So PK was one of the first ones to really come out and start talking about the Catalonia political situation. I think more and more kind of going to come out with this. You've seen it in music with Stormzy come out about the whole Theresa May, Jeremy Corbyn and the whole political situation here in the UK. I feel players will start to maybe be a bit more vocal on those type of situations that if they see there's something wrong, they'll say it's wrong. If they see something that they agree with, they may start to say that they agree with that. Now, they're more educated as well, so their opinion may actually influence far more people. You see Vincent Company with the NBA Hector's now got a degree in marketing and he's looking at other degrees now. They're looking at far more beyond just football. So how does social then allow them to have a voice to influence people? I think they're very much focusing on influencing people and leaving legacies behind. So we'll see a big push into that kind of space. But also they're competing with Instagrammers and YouTubers. So they have to get their personality out there. They have to, they have, to have regular content if they want these commercial endorsements because... I've worked with a number of brands now that are now looking at YouTubers rather than footballers. So that message will now be filtered back to footballers to say, actually, they went with the ex-YouTuber. So you can now start, you can see a shift in how these guys are thinking that they're more open. They, they will allow fans more into their lives. Interesting thing is platforms, because you've talked about Instagram yeah. being the one that players are most engaged with, really, and Twitter does one thing Facebook does another thing didn't mention Snapchat so where are we with the platforms yeah. in general but Snapchat where does that fit in because a year ago we were thinking that yeah. was that was everything particularly for the demographic that players will appeal to for us the biggest pitfall in Snapchat is we can't analyse anything if we can't analyse it we can't understand the performance of it so unless we have that we're not really justifying anything with Snapchat it's all about in time real life now as much as people think a footballer's life is glamorous and amazing, it's actually very boring. They go training, they're not allowed to snap at training grounds. They're in their car, you're not allowed to use your phone when you're in the car. They go home. Now, nine times out of ten, players probably not going to, going to want to post about their house so people can see what their house looks like. We've had situations in the past where people have um, screenshot something, gone onto Google Image, dragged in their image and actually found out where the person lives based on estate agents posting images of the house prior so it opens up a whole new kind of demographic with snap so snap it's one of those ones it could come back to life insta stories allows you to post kind of from from your camera rolls and it doesn't look bad on the screen post from a camera roll on snap it looks terrible so a lot of people don't want to do that now so that means you struggle to do it for them that's the other thing 100% 100% we struggle to do it for them because we're hoping that they create the content. We we did try it with Hector. He used to send us the content and say, look, do you think this is okay? 
he'd save it to memories and then post it. And then a lot of the time it seems forced. A lot of the times we don't know what the purpose is for that end user. Yeah, they can see you doing this, but we see it more as a peer-to-peer platform, more as a friendship type thing rather than a player because a player may not want to show off about something. So if they're doing something, they may not want to snap it because they'll go, oh, that person will just think, oh, he's got this, he's got that, he's like this, he's like that. So for us, it's a difficult platform because we, I don't think anyone's really figured out what they're doing with it just yet. Neymar uses it a lot right now, but again, it's from memories. He posts up a picture from, from a game or something like this, but unless we analyze and actually really dive into what we're doing with it right now, it's, it's a wasted investment. And just finally, be engaged. Where's your next one year, your next three years, your next five years? So our, our idea is to engage the players with an audience in a whole new way and to then engage them with the brands in a whole new way. So we're looking at different types of ways that we can engage players with audiences. Traditionally, everyone's looked at pictures, but now we're looking at video. So how do we use video to best engage with the fans? What do the fans want? How do we then get that player's personality and their brand values across to the fans? We're looking at different markets. So we're looking at Spain, we're looking at Germany, we're looking at the Far East. Now, Far East is a huge fan base how do we tap into that the clubs have tapped into it very well so how do we now with global players look at that market so we're looking at different expansion strategies across the globe but also looking at individual types of players looking at way beyond just their social channels how do we build a brand what types of brands are we building with them for example and what is the end goal so we're looking to change the space in a way that is focusing more offline rather than just online. I feel like the industry will take another turn soon. Social media space will be very saturated. So how do we now start to look at other other avenues and other platforms that we can be utilizing? But again, with the brand spaces, what types of brand campaigns can we do that haven't been done before? We're looking at collaborations between brands to then have an ambassador within there. So it's not just looking at one brand anymore. We're looking at how can we bring two brands together to to then do a deal with a player? How do we bring three brands together? So we're looking at whole different ways that maybe the industry hasn't looked at before. Thank you very much. No, thank you, Rich. You've been listening to Sport, Digital and Social with Mr. Richard Clark. Rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. You can find Richard on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram by searching for at Mr. Richard Clark or at his website, mrrichardclark.com.